0: Welcome to the Creatives with AI podcast. I'm your host, David, and this is a show where we share insights about the future of artificial intelligence and how it will affect the lives of people working in the creative industries. In today's episode, I chat with Henry Coutinho-Mason, founder of 3Space, international keynote speaker and author of The Future Normal. Our conversation delves into the personal journey of Henry, a futurist accountant, detailing his transition from corporate finance to futurism. Henry provides his unique perspective on how to approach future trends, stressing the importance of asking better questions about potential futures instead of trying to predict them. Henry's an acclaimed thought leader on future trends and innovation and a leading foresight expert obsessed with fresh perspectives on the biggest business question, what will customers want next? He recently co-authored the book, The Future Normal, launched in March 2023, which offers insights into how society will live, work, and thrive over the next decade. His previous bestseller, Trend-Driven Innovation, laid out a practical approach to anticipating customer expectations that became the basis for trend-watching's renowned research used by major brands globally. As a consultant, he advises organizations on trend and innovation strategies focused on industries from retail to luxury to travel. He also provides guidance on B2B content, digital research transformation, and community building. As an energetic speaker, he's given over 100 presentations in in over 30 countries on capitalizing on trends and the evolving consumer. As a social entrepreneur, he co-founded the award-winning 3Space, which is dedicated to generating social value from empty commercial property. Links to Henry's profiles, his books, and his social media will be in the show notes on our website at Creatives with AI. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoy this future-gazing conversation with Henry. Henry, welcome to the podcast today. Thanks for having me. So I met you through a friend, um, Natalia, and I know she's working on some projects with you, and and we'll get into that um, in a little bit. But I always like to start off and ask people sort of how you're doing today. How are you feeling? How's how's life going for you at the minute?
1: Yeah, I'm feeling good. You know, we've got, we're sitting here mid-September, it's that kind of, strange transition moment isn't it but between the end of the summer and we were just discussing before we started the recording the kind of business end of the year and especially if you are a trend watcher futurist however you know i i am defined and we might come on to discuss that that definition this is where so much happens because despite the fact that the world doesn't operate in neat 12 month cycles that is still how a lot of businesses operate. So, you know, this period between September to kind of mid-December is when everyone is putting on their future-gazing hats and saying, what's around the corner? So, for me, it's. I slightly feel it's the calm before the storm right now, although given the experience of the last whatever, nine and a half months or maybe 10 and a half since the AI boom kicked off. It doesn't feel very calm. It feels like we've had a hell of a year already. And I think I wrote in one of my newsletters recently, this is what it feels like living on an exponential curve, I guess. You know, we are at the start of, and people have been talking about this for a long time, but it really feels like it's kicking into gear now. Stuff's getting faster and faster. I mean, it has for the last 10 years. You know, you could always say, I know a friend of mine who's another futurist has, you know, got a great slide, which is today is the slowest day you'll ever experience kind of thing, you know, from from now forward, it's only going to get faster. So putting all those futurist cliches aside, it feels like this year's been exciting, but it still feels like there's a lot to come. And, you know, sitting at the, the the edge of that, trying to make sense of it, is is bo- both challenging, fun, a privilege, all of the above. I
0: totally agree with you. And I think what's interesting is I've i spent the last couple of days at the COGX show in London, which is a big AI event. And what's quite interesting is, and I know we're jumping straight into the to the conversation, but kind of the general feeling I got is that I think earlier this year there was a lot of, worry and almost panic about oh my god ai is going really quickly and it's moving so fast but the feeling i started to get was actually we're we're past the hype curve we've 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 passed the crest of that curve and i think now things are starting to calm down a little bit everybody's starting to go okay let's just be a bit more reasonable and rational about what's happening here you know we've all played with the tools we've gone through the fun exciting discovery phase And we've actually started to try and use them for real. And we've started to find the cracks and we've started to find the weaknesses and we've started to say, "Okay, well, actually, maybe it's not going to replace humans as quickly as we thought. Um, And and I think so. So there's a little bit of realism coming in, particularly around AI in general, but absolutely 100 percent. You know, we like you said, we were just talking beforehand and, you know, I've got three events, you know, a week for the next few weeks and, and certainly in Europe where we, you know, we take off the summer mm. and sort of August, <laughs> you know, most of August or, or half of July and August, you know, we're, we're away and and Europe goes on holiday and everything slows down and it's really difficult to get anything done. And then all of a sudden in September, it's like, right. Okay, hit the gas. Oh, yeah. We've got to get all this stuff done, you know, before Christmas and, um, but no, it sounds good. Sounds like you're in a good place, which is, which is always good. And um, maybe the next thing is if you, I mean, again, I, I know a little bit more about your background and we will have done the intro at the beginning, but maybe if you just sort of set the tone for the listeners to explain in your own words a little bit about your background, wow. um, maybe, you know, talk about being an author and that sort of thing, because obviously you've got the book and, w- and we'll talk about that. Um, but yeah, that might be a best place to start.
1: Yeah. So my, my background is, I guess most people, um, Encounter me, or have encountered me through my work. I ran a company called Trend Watching for ten years, uh, which was a small boutique kind of content business. We hosted events, and we did a bit of you know in-house consulting and, and speaking. And uh, but I had quite an unconventional entry into this world. Uh, so I, I started my career at KPMG. So I'm actually a trained accountant. So I kind of had this very squiggly career. That's that great book, right? With a squiggly career. Um, to started as a kind of corporate financial services accountant, <laughs> consultant, moved into uh trend watching, spent 10 years that. In parallel, I also co-founded a, a real estate nonprofit focused on urban regeneration, um, which is still going and, and I'm not super involved day to day, but you know, it's a kind of another strand of, of my professional identity, I guess. And then in, in 2020, in the pandemic, I left the trend watching business and had written one book when I was there, which was kind of uh, looking back on it, quite a technical manual about how to be a trend watcher, kind of how to uh, use the signals that you see in the marketplace today in order to anticipate you know future c- consumer trends. And um, yeah, so I spent the last three years... Um, in this really privileged position, basically writing with my, my co author, Rohit Bhargava, who's based in the US, he's based in Washington, uh, I think this is his eighth or ninth book, and he wrote a whole series of book called The Non Obvious Trend Series. So you know, it's obvious why we, why we teamed up. And we basically realized that we, we had a very similar perspective, both on the futures industry, which is where we're often kind of boxed, right, as, as trend watchers. But also just you know the industry itself, but also in you know, our attitudes to just the future so so to get, to unpack that statement with two parts of it, the first reason why we, well, how we actually started our conversation was that we having both written books on trends, we were often kind of put in this futurist box at events, you know going wheeled out to talk about what's coming next, and you know we both felt quite uncomfortable with this label. Partly because, I mean, for many reasons, but you know, for, for me personally, futurism kind of seems like quite a kind of wanky profession. To be honest, it's there's so much kind of artifice and manufactured mystique, and it's it's you know it's often kind of delivered as if you know if you pay me lots of money, I'll kind of open the trench coat and I'll show you what's inside. You know, and I'm this kind of mystical figure, and that just didn't sit very well with me partly because I always felt like a bit of an outsider to the industry i said i came in as a kind of accountant into this trend watching business and i was pretty young when i started when i joined that business i was 26 and and um so i basically felt a bit of an imposter right especially when i was looking at some of the people i was speaking to you know you go into a conference or an event and you're talking to the head of digital at some big agency or the head of marketing or innovation or strategy for you know, big FMCG company. I mean, these are super smart people. And this idea that, you know, essentially little old me could come in, I mean, it's kind of, you know, slight faux humility, but like, you know, could come in with some grandiose prognostication about the future just seemed faintly ridiculous. Um and it was also very much driven by our business model. I think at Trendwatching. Watching, so at Trendwatching, Watching, we were a crowd-powered content business. I mean, it wasn't exclusively crowd-sourced, but we had our business model. We had a newsletter that went out to about a hundred thousand people, and we essentially asked, you know, some of them to pay us for their insights. That was the professional. That was the revenue-generating business model. But the adjacent side of a business model. Was to say, look, what are you guys seeing? What are you seeing in your marketplace? Right, here's some ideas that we're putting out around, you know, what might be coming next. Can you help us validate them or, you know, extend them? Um, and so, I guess that business model, you know, breeds a certain sense of, if not humility, but equality with your audience, right? And and so, um, for me, it was a combination of. Number one, I don't believe you can I don't believe you can predict the future because it's you know it's, it's so chaotic and who knows and its certainly if I could predict the future, I wouldn't be sitting here talking about it. I would be sitting there with Mark Zuckerberg you know on a yacht somewhere, having created it. Um, so I kind of don't believe you can predict the future, but I don't believe you need to because I think I always say you know the job of a trend watcher is not to tell you what is going to happen it's to help you ask better questions about the potential futures that you might be able to create and actually that's where i find the most interesting aspects of what i do is having conversations with people who, you know, I said I was, you know, I'm hugely impressed, hugely intimidated by a lot of the people that I speak to because they're running often these giant organizations or they have a huge amount of, of power and, and potential influence. And I think there's something like deeply inspiring for me on a personal level to be speaking to someone and saying, okay, based on where we are today and what I've just shown you about the kind of recent history or, or really the, you know, the, the present, what could you do in, in the next? Three, six, nine, twelve, eighteen months to create a better future, you know both for your business but also for for your customers and for the world at large. And so that's the bit that I find most interesting. Um, so yeah, so that's a, a long-winded answer to say, you know we we came in, we wrote this book called the Future Normal. Um, we position it as the the executive airport book, if you like. It is compared to many books like this it doesn't have so much of a kind of a grandiose big idea it is really 30 short chapters you know we are also very mindful of everyone's fading attention spans or shrinking attention spans it is designed to be read you know in 50, 10 15 minute sittings you know whatever it is snatched moments on your way to work before you go to bed and every chapter asks a, a big what if question you know what if every product was biodegradable and there was no waste, right? What if you could share your job? What if you know a a company could think beyond just net zero and towards being truly regenerative or whatever that, you know, there's 30 of them. Every chapter is framed around a big what if question. And what we do is we look in the chapter at an instigator, we call them a a featured instigator, a a startup or, or an individual or an organization or whatever it is, someone that is... Essentially asking that question today. And then we just ask, you know, we we explore what what that looks like, what that might mean, and then we end each chapter with a couple of questions that essentially are addressed at people who are not super close to that particular happening today. You know, maybe they're not in that industry, they're not in that part of the world. But we ask questions like, what would it look like if this became normal if this became totally mainstream. How would that impact you, your life, your organization, your employees, your family, whatever it is? Uh, and that was, as I said, a very fun book to write. Um, and we just didn't didn't feel like enough people were asking those questions. There seemed to be a lot of people with a lot of certainty about the future and telling us how terrible it's going to be and how, you know, everything can go wrong. And so we felt if <laughs> we're honest, we felt it was a bit of a gap in the market for someone to ask the, the optimistic side of that question
0: which is actually something that I wanted to ask you about. Um, and we'll get to that in a second, but a couple of things have popped up in the meantime. One is taking the leap from being a sort of a chartered
1: account. Are you a chartered accountant? I was, I, I didn't pay my fees. Uh, so I'm no longer a member of the Institute, but I did qualify.
0: <laughs> so a couple of things came to mind um, in, in a couple of things came to mind as you were talking. One is making the leap from being a chartered accountant to a futurist. That feels like a massive leap. How did you, what, what was, what prompted you to go from sort of the accountancy world to the futurist and the trend watching world? I, that's a really interesting sort of, that feels like an interesting jump to me. Was it that you didn't feel, because for, an, I know a lot of accountants, my, you know, my father-in-law has been an account for a long time and it's, it's interesting though that that that's a jump. So, did the accountancy not really fit with you, or like, how did that how did that come come about?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I guess, I mean, the first thing to say is <laughs> I was a terrible accountant. I don't think it didn't gel with me. Uh, <laughs> I just okay, fair enough. You know, it, it it didn't click with me. Why did I become an accountant? I mean, I guess that's probably a bigger question almost. So, I studied politics and international relations at university. You know, trend watching was always one of my favorite newsletters. I, I used to read it before I ever had a job. I just loved the, the, the tone and the the question. And actually, looking back, you kind of have these moments of clarity sometimes that you know only with great hindsight you can see. Um, I remember actually, I, only after I started in this field, I remembered. Someone had come to our school. I was at school in in Suffolk near near and There was a big BT office there, and I remember having a visit from someone who worked for BT, who was essentially their futurist. And I was probably seven or eight, and you know I'd forgotten this for twenty five years, but at one point I suddenly remembered. Oh yeah, I, I remember this guy coming to our school and kind of talking about this job, and thinking that sounds pretty cool. Like I, you know, is there there's a job where you can just get to think about what's coming next? So I think the answer to your question is probably the accountancy was the aberration rather than the leap into it. You know, why did I become an accountant? Right. In, well, partly in the UK. For any international listeners, in the UK, you know, it's, it's quite a common thing to go from a, a, you know, an arts or a humanities or a social science degree into into you know finance like that. It's not quite the leap that it is in, say, the US, where you know, basically you have to study accounting to become an accountant. Um, Honestly, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. And this felt like a kind of a paid MBA, <laughs> if you, you know you're, you're able to live in London. And you get exposure to different types of businesses. And I'm very flippant about my accountancy background here. But actually, I think it does give you, you know, a deeper understanding of the commerciality of what is possible and the commerciality around innovation. Uh and I think so. A, I would say I'm not really a futurist. Is one part of the answer to your question of how did I maybe leap from again? Account- <laughs> I certainly wasn't an accountant. So yeah, I'm not really yeah. a futurist. So I think the leap is less than it seems. I, I, I yeah, I've I've written in the book, and we, we write about being reluctant futurists. I use the term nowist sometimes because the other part of this is actually to say, okay, yeah, I you know, said so I'm not a futurist. I don't believe that you need to be a futurist to help people with meaningful insights about the future, if that makes sense. Because I actually think the most powerful insights about the future come from what's already happening today. And we talk about this with really about the subject of my whole first book, which was the irony. That, that was really exploring the irony that as a consumer trend firm, we never spoke to consumers and that was a kind of arresting point for many people to to understand and we said we're not like ipsos or you know any of these market research people that go out and they poll hundreds of thousands of people and they try and give you insights about what's coming next through that route and we said you know i don't think this is necessarily uh, the only way it's expensive it's hard and there's all the kind of flaws that you know the market researchers themselves will tell you you know the, the danger of looking back to look forward but put simply, my model of change and the way that I approach understanding the future is to say people's expectations are set by their experiences and they can be created by their experiences and actually the way for a business to understand what's coming next is to think about what will people expect from you in the future because that's, that's essentially what you have to deliver. And how do you understand what they're going to expect from you? It's going to be by thinking about the core human needs and wants that you're going to serve. And and I always talk about it's as important to think about what's not going to change when you're thinking about the future as it is to think about what is going to change. And so if you think about what's not going to change, these are going to be the things that you can build your business around. So, you know, if you're a bank, it's going to be trust and security. And, uh, you know, if you're you're a food company, it's going to be about taste, but it's going to be also about safety and security and reliability, but convenience as well, right? So you're going to have certain basic human needs and wants, which are core to the the value that you deliver to, to people. And the way to understand the future is to look at how... Innovations, typically business innovations, but it could be, you know, political innovations, social innovations. But how are people's expectations changing around those basic human needs and wants? And often, looking to adjacent sectors will give you ideas. It's a, it's a cliched example, just to use one, which is kind of very obvious to people. I used to use a number of years ago. You know, when Uber kind of revolutionised the transportation customer customer experience. Someone would pull out their phone. They'd order an Uber. They'd have that level of information transparency. You'd see the car arriving. You'd be able to see the driver ratings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You'd get in that that car. You'd be able to share that information with someone. You know, they'd be able to see when you're arriving, and then you get out, and it would be a cashless experience, right? That would be a very you know seamless digital experience. You then walk into. H&M or Wagamamas or whatever restaurant or retail environment, and it would be the exact opposite. There's no information transparency around you know, how long your dish is taking to arrive, whatever you have a product, you know, et cetera, et cetera, all the things that we just said. And we say consciously or subconsciously, you know, people might not realize that uh, you know, in the, that immediate moment, but there's a, consciously or subconsciously, there's, a, there's a, a point of tension, right? There's a, there's a dissatisfaction there uh, with the, the experience in one context versus the experience, you know, they've just had in a different context. And that's really the secret to, to spotting innovation opportunities is to say, you know, I can identify those points of tension and I can attack them and, and I can create things that, that, you know, help resolve them.
0: Yeah. And your example there just made me think of something, um, that I've come across working with some of the public sector, um, organizations that I work with, which is, and this is exactly what you're saying. There, there used to be an expectation of privacy and from the population. So people would say, oh, well, you know, I don't, I don't want anybody at the council to be able to see my information because that's my information. And, you know, someone, Mm. you know, John over there shouldn't be able to look at the data that Mary stores about me on that side. Right. And that was that it's been that way for a long time. Mm. But what's happened now is with the march of technology and everything else, when when someone calls the council to say, get a parking permit and the parking team says, well, you have to prove to me that you live at that address and blah, blah, blah. And they say, but hang on, you've got my council tax records. Like I already pay council tax. Why do mm. I need to prove you've already got my address? Why do I have to prove that? And they say, oh, but that's not our system. That's that's a totally separate system. So you have to do every. And it's like mm. it that used to be OK, because that's kind of how people felt that they wanted it. But now there is an expectation mm. from the consumer and the citizen that that should just be handled in the background. And it, it, you shouldn't need to do that, right? It's the council, the council should have a record about me and that should have all the information in it. So it makes it easier for me, not easier for the council or whatever. So I, I absolutely agree. And that's, you know, that's something that's coming. Um, and it's, I also like what you were talking about in the book. And I I, I have started reading the book. I haven't read all of it yet. So I apologize. I haven't, I I haven't made my way through the whole thing. So, uh, but I have started it. And, and one of the things that came out of it is I do like the fact that you raise questions and that's really what I'm trying to do with the podcast Mm. is I'm trying to get interesting people again, like you said, people way more experienced and way more knowledgeable than me, um, to come on and to talk to the listeners and to talk to me. And explain sort of what's going on. But mm. then for that to be a, a what I want that to turn into is something that's thought-provoking. Right. Yeah. And I want people to be able to say, wow, okay, well, what does that mean for me? And 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 what do I need to do moving forward? And how do I need to think about this? And how do I need to plan around it? Mm. So it's a very similar thing that we're trying to do. Do you know what I mean? Because you're right. We can't, I don't know what's going to happen next week, but if I can make people think about what might happen and how that might affect them and, and how, you know, what that might mean for them and their business and their industry, particularly around creative industries, obviously, because of the new technology, then, then I'll be successful. And that's kind of, you know, that, that's all I'm trying to do is, is, is have these great discussions. And I suffer from the the sort of imposter syndrome as well, because I have conversations with people like you and I go, wow, they're really smart. (laughs) And I'm not very smart. I just like to try and try and ask, you know, reasonable questions and, and, and see where we go. So how, so going back to kind of the conversation, another thing that sort of jumps out. So how are you so positive? I guess, um, you, you seem like a glass half full sort of guy around mm. technology and particularly AI and and how things are moving forward. And that a lot of people are very cautious about everything and bordering on glass half empty. Um, and I guess I'm just trying to, you know, understand what, how do, why do you see everything being so positive and why are you kind of half, glass half full about it?
1: Yeah, I think it's a great question. And, it, you know, it's probably the biggest recurring uh, negative you know, piece of feedback from the book we get. Right. If you read some reviews and speaking to people, it's like this is fairly relentlessly optimistic um i think there's a couple of reasons for this number one i've already kind of discussed that partly it was just trying to introduce some balance into the conversation around you know the future because it seems like it's it's very dystopian at the moment we've already discussed that and i don't think it answers your your question which more, on a much more personal level for me the optimism comes from not f- believing that everything is going to turn out right, because actually I'm I'm quite um, cynical and jaded, I guess you could say, about the gap between the promises that are made at the beginning of a technology and the reality. Right, so I'm under no illusion, actually, that I think it will turn out to be an optimistic future. I mean, I think broadly it will be, but I, I think a lot of these technologies will have deeply negative second order implications and often first order implications but definitely second order implications that their proponents you know on day 1 or you know year 1 are, are not even not aware of or not acknowledging i think my optimism though come or, or my my pos- optimistic positioning in my content and when i write about these things and i think about it comes from what I was talking about earlier, where the bit that I find most interesting about what I get to do is those conversations with people who have significant you know, power and influence to, to create a future. And it's, it's the view that if you approach things optimistically and say, what could this become? That's going to help lead Not just the people who are building it today, but the people who are going to then use these technologies or scale them and you know take them to the mainstream, right? The kind of you know be that big governmental organisations or big you know uh, whatever you know big uh, consumer brands, etc. Starting that conversation from a position of optimism is more likely to then create positive outcomes, rather than if you come in saying these are all the bad things that this technology can do. Then you're teeing up either that's you know we will create the future that we imagine which will be dark or we just won't ever engage with it, and I think you know I I had a couple of links at the bottom of my newsletter this week, you know forever we will get you know this is an AI podcast I guess we should talk about AI at some point (laughs) you know in a way that's 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 kind of the point is that it's not about the technology it's more about people so I think we're in the right place to be talking more about people and their our response to it rather than just the technology. But you know there will be forever stories, and you're going to read a story in one outlet about how you know an AI was able to diagnose a child's illness when no doctor could, and how isn't this great, and then you're going to read another story the next day about the AI missing something and you know or the the radiographer or whatever you know not having the same level of attention because they kind of mentally outsourced everything to the AI and they missed something you know yeah. same with self driving yeah. cars It's the same with every technology. And look, that is in no way to denigrate or or to dismiss the pain that those individual cases, you know, incur. Of course, you know, if look, would I be happy if my son or daughter was killed by a by a self driving car? Absolutely not. uh, you know, it's it's the old narrative that it is. You know, that the fire department doesn't get any credit for all the fires that they don't put out. You know, you're you're aware of the ones where they actually have to turn up and pull the hose out. You know, the boring stuff of smoke alarms and you know, uh, fire retardant materials, etc., etc., doesn't you know doesn't it doesn't fit with our kind of narrative of if we have to see it happening for it to to make an impact on us. So yeah I think you know, it really is my optimism or my optimistic positioning comes more from the kind of conversations that I'm trying to have with the people I work with, whether their clients or just you know, more remotely at arm's length for an audience, rather than necessarily naively believing that everything that I write about will become 100 percent true, because as I said at the start, you know I, I, I definitely don't take that position.
0: No, I like that. And I I like that we will create the future we imagine. That's a fantastic quote. And I totally believe that as well. Um, everything has a dual use problem, right? Like everything can be used for good or bad. So it, there, it's better for us to approach it from a positive perspective than from a negative perspective. There will always be the Eeyore types, right? Personality types who will sort of approach that and, and we'll rely on them to kind of look at that and and keep everything in check and there'll also be the tiggers as well and and we'll yeah. go out and we'll use it for all the new fun and exciting stuff and 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 we'll push it to the limit as much as we can so I was just gonna say as well while while you were talking just uh, you did mention that you had some some reviews there so I did a quick check on Amazon and just for the audience to know you've got a four point seven rating on Amazon for the book so <laughs> um, that's quite good so
1: <laughs> well and look <laughs> the reality is, yeah, it's actually as important to have some negative reviews. You know, psychologically, it, it's very disconcerting uh, for people to see exclusively five-star reviews because it's not realistic. You know, and actually to draw a parallel with a conversation we're just having about technology, as you say, no technology is universally good because you know the users of it are not universally good, and it's, exactly. it's kind of yeah. a missing piece for me. You know, when people have this conversation about AI or, or any other technology it's as if we have zero society and i know you can make a whole discussion about you know that that is maybe what some of these technologists want right into you know, a true anarchist kind of end of a techno utopian spectrum but you look at cars you know we we don't exist in a society where like you can jump in your car and do whatever you want and drive at 100 miles an hour like outside a school it's, it's ludicrous to suggest it, it's the conversation about these technologies seems to me Totally divorced from the reality in which we exist, which is everything exists within a framework of rules and regulations. And I think actually that's definitely you know the part of the journey that I've been on over the past ten years. It, it, it is becoming much more cognizant of the role in which regulators and, and you know governments play when it comes to shaping. Uh, our adoption and deployment of new technologies, and that is a good thing, you know. And I think there's this naive, as I say, burn it all down in terms of you know this kind of ultra right wing. You know, we shouldn't accept any restrictions, which is just patently ludicrous. You know, one of my favourite books uh, is there was a book called The Joy of Tax, and it was a short book, and it was saying you know, everyone talks about death and taxes being these <laughs> two inevitable things that we want to try and avoid in life, and he says. It's again, it's a kind of ludicrous positioning. But if you actually dissect, does not hold up at all. He said, if you really want to live in a in a low tax economy, move to the DRC where there's like zero, you know, the Congo where there's no tax collection. There's no road. There's also no roads. There's also no electricity. You know, we do not live like people who say they want something and they don't actually think it through, are as you know, just as dangerous as the kind of dystopian people, because it's not saying you know to to be utopian about a technology does not in my opinion suggests that you think that technology should just be released into the wild with zero restrictions it says you know there is the potential for this technology to on balance do a lot of good if we do you know make, make a lot of restrict you know if we position it and deploy it in a certain way now yeah that is not as media friendly and social media friendly as AI is good, AI is bad. But it, it is just the reality, and it, it's ridiculous to suggest otherwise. So the optimism comes from a position of the technology could do great things, but society also has to do great things in terms of understanding what the benefits and what the risks are, and suppressing the risks as much as possible, and ideally, you know, eliminating them, and unleashing the benefits. And, and that is Again, that is not a technological question, that is a, a social question, that is a political question, that is a cultural question. And arguably, we always have more problems on those questions than we do on the technological questions.
0: Yeah, 100%. And it's, I'm, I'm unashamedly going to steal this from Stephen Fry, who um, I saw yesterday at Cargex, and he gave the example of driving. It's the same as driving. Right. You know, we invented, you know, um, Daimler invented the car, you know, back in the late 1800s and stuff like that. And then, first of all, everybody said, oh, it's never going to work because horses and blah, blah, blah. And then obviously, you know, Henry Ford sorted it out. And then we got more and more cars on the road. But then the problem started and they started to say oh well actually if you know if you go too fast it's dangerous and if you you know yeah. you don't have these rules so then they very gradually started to put some rules and some regulations in place and now you have to be a certain age and you have to pass a test and you have to drive on a certain side of the road and the cars have to you know have certain safety features yeah. and then you have to do this and you have to do that and so we have this whole set of requirements around driving but by and large those requirements mean that it's a pretty safe method of but- transportation do people still have accidents? Of course they do, because mm. people and you know accidents are always going to happen. It's you can't get away from that. And I, it, it was his position. I will, I will be quite transparent, but I totally agree with the, the way he presented it. And and the example that he gave is, you know, that's sort of where we are with AI at the minute. Is we've invented it. Let's forget the machine learning that's been around for 20 years and and that sort of thing, this generative AI that we have now. You know, we're at the same sort of place with AI at the minute. I think we've got it. We now need to start to develop what are the basic rules? How do we just set some some regulations around it to kind of keep it on track? And hopefully, you know, I mean, like even today with all the rules we have around vehicles, sometimes people drive them into a crowd of people. Like in yeah. th- thats always going to happen. So, you're, you're right. It's we can't control the people. People is always the worry, um, and and how people use tools. So, that's a that could be slightly concerning, I guess. But the technology itself is 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 neither positive nor negative.
1: Um, well, and I also think you you made a very interesting point earlier when you were talking about this, the stage and the first hype wave. Feels like it's slightly ended, you know. And there was that moment when people were losing their minds, and this is going to disrupt everything. And, you know, literally, <laughs> you know, AI is a hammer that can, you know, attack every nail. Um, and of course, we're realizing that, to your point, effective deployment of a technology, and, you know, let's continue the driving analogy. Driving in a car is not the only mode of transportation. (laughs) You know, there are other circumstances where public transportation makes sense, walking makes sense, you know, etc. etc. Yeah, and so new technology comes in, it does something significantly better than the previous technology. It seems to be general, you know, have a general purpose application, so people then rush off to think it's you know to explore those. And, as you say, we then realize quite quickly how and where it can truly be best applied. And that takes time. You know, that is not going to happen overnight. And exactly as you say, I totally agree. I think we are in, if not the trough of disillusionment, because I think that seems a bit negative, just in the kind of inevitable, Stage where like we have to work this stuff through, you know, and we test and we learn and we iterate. And you know, especially at the organizational level, that takes time. And again, you know, we spoke we, the common thread of this conversation has been we're talking about people. Uh and again, to 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 move the conversation forward to, to the new project that I've been working on with with Natalia, our, our mutual connection. One of the things we've realized since publishing this, so we published in the summer, uh, an illustrated guide to AI innovation opportunities, starting with the marketing and advertising sector. And one of the things we've realized almost since publishing it, actually, is some of the feedback we've got. It wasn't a necessarily a particularly deliberate uh, <laughs> focus when we started it. But we realized that the innovation opportunities that we're talking about in that graphic sit somewhere between there's a kind of gap in the market at the moment for, for around in the ai conversation there's there's tons of stuff focused on this is how you as an individual can be a super prompter you know you can you can this is how you automate x part of your job and it's it's generally it's work tasks right there, there's a, there's a you know a huge focus on how ai will change how you do x task Write a creative brief. Write a job application. Whatever it is, you know, assess your yep. marketing funnel, et cetera, et cetera. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's the McKinsey, Accenture, Capgemini, the big consultancy firms that are writing your know, reports about how generative AI will add three trillion to X industry, and you know, it's very, very kind of C-suite macro level. And that's great, and you know, we need both of those, but. As I said, slightly by accident, we kind of stumbled in in this this missing middle, which is most people in white collar, you know, medium, small to medium to large organisations work in teams on projects, and it feels like there's a there's a bit of a gap in the conversation around what does AI do to that project level kind of unit of innovation? You know, a new product, a new campaign, a new digital experience, whatever it is. But that is where, I mean, certainly for you know, our audiences, I suspect, most activity, you know, professional and economic activity happens, right? You know, there's, there's, yes, there's startups being founded, and there's people really taking a bird's eye view of large existing organizations, C-suite, but most people are in a team or a department and operating. And it feels like yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a gap there. Uh, so that's been fun to explore, to be honest, because uh, you, as we talked about earlier, I'm always interested in in identifying and exploring and having conversations around just as you are, having conversations around things that people haven't yet seen, and you know there's a there's a seed of something there. But let's I'm about to mix a metaphor horribly, but let's pull at this thread. You know you can't pull at the seed <laughs> thread. Okay. Uh, but there's something there today. And there's a few early examples, but it hasn't yet scaled. And having that conversation around what might it look like, it being again poorly defined. What does that look like to an organisation? What does that look like to the end product? You know, the end innovation. What does that look like to the individuals? You know, who are creating it? Those conversations I find really interesting. Is that?
0: Hmm. No, I like that. I I do. I do think there's a gap. I agree as well. And at the low end, the low end, (laughs) I say that in sort of air quotes, but when I think the low end, I mean, Twitter conversations and Twitter threads, I Mm -hmm. think that's where you're getting, you know, people are just trying to drive engagement on, on social media. And so they're doing, Hey, here's the 10 way to write the best prompts. And here's that. And it's, it's the same thing from thousands of different people. Um, because they're all just trying to get people to click on their stuff and to, you know, to buy yeah. their online training content and all, all all those other things. And I'm sure some of them are fantastic, um, but it just feels like it's a lot of people just trying to generate traffic. So it's mm. it, it. I'm not sure there's a lot to it. The McKenzie's in the and the other stuff on the other end, 100 percent. Totally agree. That's the but but that's what they do. Right. They write these yeah. big reports and two and three, four hundred pages, and they charge to you know, half a million pounds to do it. And they provide it to organizations, whether it be governments or, you know, large companies and that sort of thing. And that's the consulting model. And that's that's what they do. Everybody else is sort of left in the middle trying to actually figure out what do we do with this thing. Um, and I think that's a fantastic point um, to bring up. And and again, sort of it's it's keeping the humans involved. And that tends to be a lot of the a lot of the conversations we I, i'm having these days end up talking more about the humans than than it does about the ai which is which is quite interesting cuz yeah. then you get into the ethics and you get into the morality and that sort of thing i mean i have to ask everybody you know what 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 are your thoughts on kind of the morality of ai and and the ethical stand
1: yeah so on ethics and ai one of the insights that I actually had a few years ago when I first started writing about AI and looking at how it could be used to uh, reduce or eliminate bias one of the positive factors as we move towards AI you know essentially making and and you know designing more systems and making more decisions is that it is mechanistic right and it is it is a you know a, a algorithmic and it is it is automated because I think one of the one of the issues you know the, the old cliche is that you know AI just reflects humanity's biases and that's kind of true. but I think if you think about it, if someone is excluded or, or discriminated against, when humans are making those decisions, It's quite easy for us to kind of dismiss them and to say that was a person who made a bad decision, right? You know, whatever it is, John is just a racist asshole, right? You know, he's, well, we'll get rid of John and we'll fix the problem. Whereas actually, a lot of these problems are, are, you know, much more systematic, right? And, And so, actually, when we Turn these decision makings over to systems, and we then see the systemic biases that come out. You know, there's all the horror stories that your listeners will know whether it's, you know, image recognition, you know, racist image recognition or non recognition of ethnic you know, minorities, whether it's, you know, job applications being screamed by women because they're not aggressive enough or whatever. You know, the story where Amazon had to pull their recruiting uh, AI tool. You know, there's, there's Endless examples, and we could fill a whole program with that. Sadly, then I think if the, the optimist in me again, that doesn't dismiss the the, the issue of those biases being there and, and you know being real. But it forces, I think, the optimist in me would say, it forces us as a society to confront that it's not just one person who's a bad apple. Those biases are coming out in the machine because they're deep rooted and systemic, and therefore, you know, and and we've got the data now to prove it, right? And so we then need to work on fixing it. Now that, of course, is you know, it's easy to we've ended on just those five words, and we need to work on fixing it, and that is a big, big task. But it forces us to confront bias and injustice and discrimination in a way, in a very different way, I think, and one that when when you know humans are in the loop exclusively. We don't have to have. That. We know it, it's easier for us to to escape those hard questions. So again, you are you, We talked. You talked earlier. Said you know I'm always optimistic. It's, I'm not optimistic necessarily at the position we are today, and certainly not in the position we're going to be at. You know, in the next hundred days. But I'm optimistic about where we could go, based on this. And, and and so that is that's my just one insight. You know, it's not the only answer. Yeah. Okay, but it's a, yeah, thought. Yeah, yeah.
0: it's, it's complicated as well. Cause you know, again, the, the example that everybody uses and, and I heard used multiple times at, at, at the show over, you know, this week was, you know, we have very fundamentally different competing ideas. You know, we have a communist idea versus a capitalist idea. And so which one of those wins? Um. And I, and I think, you know, it, it, that's the most obvious example, but we have different organizations and different, different biases. And some of those biases are on purpose and, and that's because that's what they like in that culture or, 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 don't like. So it's complicated for sure. Um, I'm conscious of time. So I have just a I have a couple of sort of quick questions I do want to ask you. Um, and then I have some, a few sort of fixed questions now that I ask people at the end of the show. Right. So, um. Thinking about the book, though, is there anything that you had to leave out that you wished you could have included, but you had to edit out in the end? Um, maybe do because it was too long or something. Uh, I don't know if that's a short question or not, but <laughs> no, I mean
1: there are forever when you're writing about the future, especially when it's these short, discrete chapters. You know, we had a whole list of of things that we you know we, we looked at, whether it was. Flying cars, space exploration—you know, some of the more techy ones, but also some of the, you know, the softer um, cultural ones. You know, we just—it's it, it, always tough. Uh, I guess that's the advantage of writing a newsletter, where you can continue to revisit some of these things <laughs> or explore them. So, you know, in that sense, the book is a snapshot in time. My thinking and, and writing—you know, both myself and Rohit have newsletters, so we continue. We have that luxury of being able to continue. So, you know, it, it means there's always scope for another one. <laughs> Follow up. Do you
0: wanna well that was my next question is do do you see a follow up? But um also give a go ahead and give a plug for the newsletter because we we definitely wanna get that in.
1: Yeah, so the the newsletter I write a newsletter called the same as the book, the Future Normal, and that is you know typically I'll look at somewhere between three and five kind of recent news stories. Some of them will be confirmations of things that I wrote about you know in the book, so it's kind of nice to say this is how this is evolving from from two years ago, three years ago. Uh, Other times, and this is the thing that I get most excited about, you know, is when new things come onto the horizon. I can't think of one off the top of my head, but you know when, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you know when, when you see something new, or something provocative. Well, you know, even AI, um, it was in, in. Funnily enough, the story of AI in the book was. Um, the, the the time span of the book was actually fitted very neatly. So we started writing it at the end of twenty twenty, and and that if you if you remember was when GPT three was first released, right? And it was still behind the kind of you know researcher, or you needed kind of you know to get some kind of special access. And I managed to track someone down uh, who had access, and you know I got a bit, it had a bit of a play around with it, but it didn't. You know, it hadn't really, it didn't really click, and it wasn't that usable, and it wasn't giving me the outputs that I wanted. And so it's funny, I, I look back at the Google Doc actually when ChatGPT came out. It was the last, it was, so it was kind of one of the early chapters I tried to write. Because when it, ChatGPT burst onto the scene, I was like, this would be great, this would be really fun if we could kind of co-write the book with ChatGPT. You know, and it wasn't good enough at that stage, uh, and I parked it, and it became this kind of thorn in my side this chapter that I just didn't really know how to finish and then fortuitously uh because we wrapped the book up uh, literally at, at Christmas uh, 2022 so you know as you you will remember right at the end of November we basically had a month of, of chat gpt and and so that chapter wrote itself incredibly quickly right at the end right and it right. It, it did a few things I and mean, it meant that you know that chapter was easy to write uh the position that we took on the chapter was uh about how ai will augment human creat- creativity so you know the, the framework that i use when i'm talking to clients about the ai is thinking about you know from a human perspective is it about essentially eliminating humans or fr- you know and, and i don't mean that in a negative sense taking tasks off the hands of humans in order for them to do other people right is it all about automation of the customer experience or worker experience on one end of a spectrum or augmentation on the other end and that's really a kind of low touch and high touch rather than about you know eliminating jobs it's around where do you want people to be to be um, interfacing with other people in in your customer journey um, so yeah you know in terms of you know things we left out or things we had to include it's it's been interesting actually, you know, having published the book uh, when we did, right you know essentially a, a month that we finished it a month after uh, ChatGPT came out, how much would I change? Uh, I, I wrote a post about this you know inevitably there's, there's been a few examples of where uh, Van Moof being the obvious one, Van Moof was profi- we profile in the book as, as one of our featured instigators and they went bust a, f- a few months ago or a month ago now probably uh, that was the most nerve wracking part of publishing the book was that period between you've <laughs> yeah. locked down the manuscript and it coming out and you're just praying that there's not a Theranos kind of scandal in one exactly. of the companies you featured. But I wrote, when Van Moof went bust, I wrote, you know, this is a kind of an occupational hazard. Actually the point of that chapter was about connecting micro mobility and, and you know specifically kind of you know electrification of micro mobility you know e scooters they're the electric bike but there's also some of the examples I get really excited about there's this uh, really cool uh, German company I believe it's German called the squad uh, solar kind of it's basically a golf buggy uh, Citroen have their ami which is a quadricycle it's called it kind of sits somewhere between a, bi- a, a bike right. and, a, and a small car it's this, you know kind of golf buggy uh, and it was about how a lot of people are talking about the 15-minute city as being a more livable future, you know, future way of life. And, and most of the conversation there is around changing the physical landscape of the city, right? Like putting, you know, making everyone 15 minutes away from a doctor or a school or whatever it is, and, and bringing things physically closer to people. And, and I had this insight looking at, you know, a lot of these, these um, you know, micromobility mobility. Platforms, whether it's a rental platform or you know you're, you own your own one, saying so actually what what I think seems to be happening is that actually is. Be- transportation is kind of diffusing, options for transportation is kind of diffusing through the city and this semi-public, public, semi-private hybrid micro-mobility models. What they're actually doing is allowing people to go further, faster. So the 15 minutes from my house, if I'm on foot, I can only go X. If I'm on public transport, I can go Y. But if I have scooters at the end of my road or, or a van move bike, I can go you know further. And that seemed to me a, a different spin on the same conversation. So the things that I'm you know, most upset about, or the things that I, it's not so much the things that we've left out that irritate me. What irritates me more is if I see an insight afterwards around something, the things I'm fascinated about are is there a conversation around something that people are talking about, an adjacent conversation that isn't being had that I think adds something to that conversation? You know, if, if everyone's, if the, my other kind of favorite chapter in the book is around synthetic biology. And the insight that we had there was, you know, everyone's talking about new materials, et cetera, et cetera. There's a strand of a conversation that I've not heard anyone else having, which says, you know, if you think about the marketing and branding industry, it's, we've essentially had a generation Of of marketers telling us that natural is best, and for very good reasons, because of all the problems with the the post war synthetic kind of bubble. Like, again, everything's cyclical. You know, synthetics came onto the market, nylon, polyester, plastic, and they were celebrated as these miracle materials. We then quickly realized that there were deep problems with them. We then kind of flipped the other way, and it was all about natural and artisan and et cetera, et cetera. Now there's there's an interesting inflection point for me that says, you know, if you look at some of these synthetic substances that are essentially you know, powered by renewable energy, they're cleaner, they're, they're, you know, there's no animal involved in eating your lab-grown chicken, there's no you know, child labor involved in your lab-grown diamond, et cetera, et cetera. What's gonna happen, I suspect, is in the next in 10, 20 years. These startups, I mean, they're already doing it, but they'll become more and more normal, will start to position synthetic as being better. It's cleaner, it's, it's it's less environmental footprint, it's better for you, there's no antibiotics if it's food, et cetera, et cetera. And so that is a much bigger conversation Around, you know, you can look at synthetic biology on a kind of narrow material level, or you can look at it on a cultural level that says, what does this do to our expectations, which is around uh, the the products that we're consuming? And that is is deeply interesting for me if you're you know if you're in an adjacent industry, right? And that's something that most people I I don't believe have thought about. So similar, you know, with AI, right? What are the conversations? It's not, I mean, AI is the obvious topic to include, everyone's talking about it. But, how do we try and unpack the second, third, fourth, fifth order consequences? right? What are the conversations that people are not having and, and I think a lot of that again as we've just discussed it's around people's expectations based on their experiences you know once they're aware of something can be hundred percent automated or something can be generated right whatever you know whatever dimension of AI we're talking about uh, what does that do to their experience or their expectations? I should say. You know, the example that I wrote about just this week was Roblox uh, announced at their Developers co- uh, Congress their their you know, AI assistant for for if you're a game developer right in the platform, and you're now going to be able to just type in like I want to create a game in ancient ruins, and it'll drop in the ancient yeah. ruins, and you'll say, Oh no, I wasn't thinking Egyptian, I was thinking more jungle and Mayan, and it'll go. And for me, like that, the interesting piece. I mean, it's a deeply interesting example, anyway. But how is that going to change childrens? Because you know, we know Roblox is nearly fifty percent, you know, under thirteen. If you grow up in an environment where you are, you expect to be able to manipulate the world around you, you know, basically instantly, and be able to have that interaction. Again, you go meant to the example we used earlier about. Uber having a you know a digital experience in in your taxi and then walking into a restaurant you know and it being very non digital there's, there's a point of tension. I think that forces you if you're in any other industry and you're thinking about your future consumer, and you are you show them that example of how that the experience that they're going to have with the, the Roblox world, and then you ask the question, what is that going to do to their expectations around? the their ability to shape you know everything else in their life it's gonna you know, the only answer to me is it's gonna it's gonna dramatically increase it right it's gonna it, it, people will have the expectation that the gap between their creative idea and their ability to realize it essentially shrinks to like near zero. And again, what does that do to to uh, you know every other organization? That's involved with you know creativity or engagement or you know, that th- those are the questions that you know yeah. once you've seen something ex- come into this th- come into the into reality, it's much easier to have a meaningful conversation around the future potential that you could engage with, rather than just saying, you know, the kind of futurist position of like minority reports and we're all gonna wear these headsets and kind of cast stuff around the screen. Like that that feels much further away. And rather than say this is happening in gaming. What does it mean, you know, if you're a fashion brand?
0: Yeah, 100%. Totally agree. Which actually is a good segue into this sort of last, because again, i thinking about time. Um, so I have a few questions that I sort of ask everybody yeah. just to see what people think about things. So there, in my mind, there are three potential futures I think that we're facing. And we might've touched on a, a little bit on on this earlier, but you've... You've sort of got the Star Trek world, which is the utopian mm. everybody's basically peaceful, we're out exploring space, trying to you know be peaceful, but there's no money. everybody works because they want to yeah. you know things are if we need food it just create gets created out of nothing for us and and we don't really want for much. then there's the Mad Max version. <laughs> which is, it? just everything completely descends into chaos. There's no technology whatsoever. There's, you know, that, that's, that's going to be, you know, I, I don't think AI is going to do that. I think it will be the side effects of AI could cause mm. massive social disruption and, and we end up in some totally dystopian kind of future. And then there's the, the middle ground, which is the Blade Runner kind of cyberpunk version, mm. which is, You've got kind of a balance of both, but, you know, it's, it's, it's maybe not ideal for everybody, but it seems to work. And I'm just curious what, how you think, where you think we might end up and, you know, I don't know, a hundred, that that's like a hundred year question or a 150 year question probably, but just curious what you think about, you know, kind of one of those three or, or, or do you have another example where you think we might fall?
1: Uh, it's a great question. I mean, the honest truth is, you know, professionally, I don't, I don't. Spend too much time, kind of thinking about this, you know, because, yeah, as I said, I, I, you know, I don't believe it's possible, and I'm not totally convinced on the utility of it, um, because I think, you know, we've always—it's just a bit of fun. Yeah, no, I know. So I didn't—that sounded much more dismissive than I than I meant it to be. (laughs) I I suspect. Okay, so maybe my my answer to it is, there will be things, you know, much of our life, yeah, will become. Or there will be elements of our lives that will probably be totally like Star Trek, kind of totally utopian and incredible and magical. I suspect we won't even appreciate them when they come, right? If you think about, you know, that old experiment, you know, if you gave someone a mobile phone, right, for hundred years ago, like, holy shit, you know, this is like, I would absolutely be the most incredible thing ever. We still have the same kind of very human issues, and so the answer, I suspect, you know. More of our lives than we can imagine will feel kind of deeply normal, and there will still be people worrying about is their partner cheating on them? Like, is their professional colleague getting ahead when they shouldn't do the same kind of human politics, right? There is a really good reason why, like, Greek mythology and you know, Shakespearean tragedy has the kind of same universality universal to it. Uh, so I think, you know, life will be amazing in parts, it will be terrible in parts, but we won't even kind of, depending on how fortunate you are and where you fall in the social hierarchy. Cause again, I suspect that that will, that will still persist for longer than we want it to. Yeah. You know, yeah. it will depend on the balance of how much of your life is incredible and how much of your life is deeply painful. Um, but I don't believe we'll So be that falling. sounds like
0: Blade Runner then. That sounds like yeah, Blade Runner to me. It's gonna, the, the challenge it's a little bit is- of
1: both. But Blade Runner is still kind of, uh, maybe I've, I haven't watched it for long enough or, or, you know, recently enough. It feels like it's a, techn- where the technology dominates. And I think, you know, in reality, it will be more like her, perhaps, where the, the technology kind of, we don't even notice some of the magical sci-fi technologies. And, and you know, they, they we're not, loomed over by these kind of neon lights and you know giant avatars that are very in our face it will be much more invisible is my suspicion
0: i like it you came up with a new option perfect yeah (laughs) (laughs) right so next one is um and and i've started asking everybody this more out of just personal interest than anything and i I actually wanted to interview a whole bunch of people at the show Mm. uh to just walking around sort of man on the street type thing but i couldn't get my 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 (laughs) I had technical problems and okay. so I wasn't able to do what I wanted to do. So I'll do it at the next show. But in your mind, is AI male
1: or female? Oh, great question. Um, again, not to be a politician's answer, both. right now, <laughs> it feels like it's created by men manifested as women. Uh because of all the stuff we've spoken about around you know the pre-existing biases so this kind of you know ai assistance sadly seem seemed to almost universally be positioned as you know slightly docile passive you know acquiescent females yet you look i mean there was that kind of dystopian press conference that i commented on where i forget where it was it was kind of world ai summit and it was basically like 20 kind of middle-aged white men with 10 humanoid robots all of whom had at best an andro- androgynous but typically a kind of young female physical form so yeah it it You know, are we at a stage where it's less neutral than that uh, or more neutral than that? And we're not there yet. Um, I think that will be one of the big opportunities. Again, the conversations will be, you know, what does a female designed uh, male AI assistant look like? We need it.
0: I I think what we'll get to is you'll decide. You'll just say, do you want a male voice or a female voice? And everybody can decide what they want and then you'll, because it doesn't make any difference, right? It's not actually male or female. It's just, it's the interface that you have. So, you know, what, you know, what, what interface do you choose? And then I guess that, that sort of, there's some whole other really interesting psychology that goes behind the whole male, female thing. And, um, I talked to the guy will who's the founder of the company that built the amica robot which i don't mm. know if you've seen it but it's the uk one and it's oh, yeah. very very realistic and her facial features are very realistic um and i'm still trying to get him on the podcast i've now mm. unashamedly nice. started asking him every time so if he listens to nice. one hopefully will give me a call <laughs> um but i've actually met will a couple of times but uh it's now just turned into something funny but <laughs> but he, he made a comment to me one time and he said that still societally people will accept a sort of, like you said, a more female type, even though his design isn't intentionally female, it's, it's more female than male. And because, you know, societally we've been fed through film and everything else. It's like Mm. the male version is Terminator and the, sorry about the dog. And, um, you know, the male version is Terminator and that's what people get in their mind. And so it's quite intimidating and, and people find it easier to have a less intimidating thing in, in a female yeah. one. So I'm just trying to work out. So so what's your answer? Is your is your personal assistant going to be a male voice or a female voice?
1: I mean, ideally, it would just be fairly neutral, I think, you know, androgynous because then okay. you don't, it removes the, um, you know, the cultural biases. And, and to your point, okay, uh, Oh, and I've got a 12, so we're going to have to go quite simple. Yeah, single. no, no, no that's fine. Well, yeah, we'll do it
0: quickly. So just one last question. So mm. when you have your assistant, what will you name it?
1: Oh, great question. Um, you know what? I haven't, I, I can you put me on the spot? I haven't thought about that, actually.
0: It'll have to be Pat
1: or something joke, androgynous yeah. that kind of goes along where it could be, where it could be either one. What would I name my assistant? Probably probably to make a point, one of my children's names, whichever one is being least helpful at the time. (laughs) (laughs) To show them what they could be doing.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, it's, uh, I just, I, it came up in a conversation I had um, with someone one time, and then I just started getting really curious about, what I'm trying to understand also is there's some sort of a trend. Do do men choose male or female voices more often? And do women choose male or female voices? And to see if there's any sort of a trend going on there. So yeah. at the next event, big event that I go to, I'm going to try and I'll, I'll get my tech sorted out so that it works better. And then yeah. I'm just going to go around and I'm going to ask like 50 people if I can and just say, hey, I have you know, three questions mm. about AI and then do a a mini little survey and kind of see what what people nice. think and see if there seems to be any pattern to it but um yeah i love it this henry thank you very much for your time today very i know cool. um we've run slightly over on the, on the time that we had booked and i i appreciate you taking the time um i will put links to all of your books your past books to the newsletter all of that stuff um in the show notes so anybody listening can go and find that information on the website and in the show notes and Look, uh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time today. And um, yeah, is there anything else you want to throw in right at the very end?
1: No, just saying it's just been fascinating and I've loved talking with you today. So thank you so much. And uh, thanks to Natalia for co- for connecting us and looking forward to, you know, hopefully being able to kind of, uh, you know, share it and, and get a bit of airtime, time and, um, you know, help you get some more interesting guests next time. No, it has been really nice. Thank you.
0: Brilliant. Thanks, Henry. I'll speak to you soon. All right. Take care. Thanks. Okay, folks, that's a wrap on another amazing episode of Creatives with AI. Thanks so much for joining us today. We really hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. If you want to stay up to date on how all things related to AI is impacting the creative industries, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever your favorite platform is. We're on them all. And follow us on social media. We're on mainly Twitter and LinkedIn. But we're the same handle everywhere, which is at Creatives with AI. We'd also really appreciate it if you could just take a minute to leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Those are our two main platforms, and it really helps other listeners find the show, and it also helps us get more popularity and more exposure. So it'd be amazing if you could help us with that. If you've got any questions, topic suggestions, guest recommendations, feel free to send us an email. The best email is hello at creativeswith.ai or you can shoot us a message on social media, either one is fine. We love hearing from all of you and we can't wait to bring more exciting episodes in the future and the best way we can do that is to get feedback from the audience and have the audience tell us who it is you'd like to hear from and what things you'd like us to ask and what topics you'd like us to talk about. So. Please use that. Let us know what you want to hear and we'll do our best to get it for you. And last but not least, we'd like to give a shout out to our sponsor, Future Hand Limited, who make this podcast possible. Your support means the world to us and we really appreciate it. So thanks very much. That's it for today. So until next time, take care, everybody, and stay curious.